Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan, and this week we've got a guest on the podcast, Dr. Billy Goldberg. Billy is an associate professor of EM at NYU Bellevue, but you probably know him better for some of the things he does outside of the emergency department. He's the author of two books that are critical reading for really any physician. Why do men have nipples and why do men fall asleep after sex? And honestly, Billy answers more of the questions that my friends have about medicine than anything I learned in any other textbook. Uh, Billy also hosts Dr. Radio, which you can pick up on Sirius. So there are lots of places to hear of Billy, but you're going to be hearing from him for the first time on Coriem. Welcome to the podcast. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm in the presence of greatness. Uh, is someone else in the room with you? Oh, no, I was talking about myself. Oh, I see, I see, I see. We've been talking about doing this for a long time. It's about time. We are going to get into it today, and we're going to get into one of your favorite topics, something that you taught me a ton about when I was a resident, and that's hip dislocations. I think, Billy, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this might be your favorite presentation in the emergency department. You're not going to tell people how I molded you into the man you are today? I don't want to completely lie to them. (laughs) I like dislocations. You know, so much in medicine is so, you know unsolvable. And there's something about a hip dislocation or any dislocation. It's like, it turns me into the orthopod. I'm like, "Mm, bone out, put bone in. And it's very, very rewarding. It's very rewarding. You know, there are only a few things in medicine, in emergency medicine, where we fix the problem, right? So you have a little abscess on someone, you poke that open. That's pretty rewarding to get that pus out. And you're right, putting a shoulder back in, putting a finger back in. These are quick fixes. Patient feels better. You feel great about it. So this isn't going to be a deep dive into hip dislocations. It's a pretty dense topic. We have a comprehensive blog post that we did back in May, and people can check that out. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes. But we're going to talk a little bit about techniques approaches and Billy's pearls and pitfalls, all the things that he taught me. And like I said, Billy's a little bit of the horse whisperer when it comes to dislocations. I I haven't actually seen it done. The rumor in Bellevue is that you have convinced people's hips to go in by themselves without even touching them. And I have seen you many times where the orthopods yanking on that thing for hours. And then you take sign out and you come in and you're like, oh, can I give you a hand? And the orthopods kind of like, yeah, sure, go ahead, take a shot. And then the hip just magically goes back in. It's pretty amazing. So Billy, I'm going to guess that there is one secret, one thing you can tell us that's going to be the cure-all for all hip dislocations here forward, right? It's the force. It's the force. Okay. I'm okay with that. I'm all right with that. And and that's a pretty apropos thing to refer to since the uh, new movie just came out a couple of weeks ago. So you uh, you are moving that into place with your mind or you are using mind tricks on the person to put it back in themselves. A little of both. Actually, no, I think the big trick is, so we do have, we have one attending in our department who's been there forever who talks about hypnotizing patients. He uses hypnosis instead of sedation. Now, I don't really buy that, but I think there's an element to, if you can get both the patient and yourself relaxed, that's the key. And I love, I love taking them away from the orthopods. When they say, oh, we're going to take this patient to the OR. I'm like, you want me to give it one try before you go? And then you put it in. And it's really, I, I think the key is good positioning. Slow and steady wins the race, and you just it's getting a patient relaxed, getting yourself relaxed, patient relaxed, then you can get almost anything in. There are you know hips that are unreducible, but most of the time you can you can do it if you set up right. Let's take a step back a little bit. Let's talk about your general approach. Patient comes in, they've got a hip dislocation. You can clearly see it's dislocated. What are your first steps in managing that patient? Again, first of all, you you never want to miss the forest through the trees, so. You have to find out what it is. So if this is a kind of a hip replacement 
and the patient was kind of doing what they weren't supposed to do, so bending their knee up or some maneuver recently that they were told not to do, then it's it's pretty simple. You always want to rule out the other thing. So again, I, sometimes we anchor on one thing and you get excited about doing the procedure and miss the whole thing. So you always want to make sure nothing else is going on. Yeah, um, and we've seen that many times, right, Billy? The patient who comes in, forget about the uh, the hip that's been replaced, because those do dislocate with very minor mechanisms of injury. But we see these in these uh, patients who have MVAs, and they come in with a dislocation, and sometimes everyone focuses on that leg that's short and, and looks odd, and they forget about the fact that the person was in an MVC. Well, if you're seeing a dislocation from an MVC, you're talking about significant force. You know, Usually, it's that flex knee against the dashboard or something. And that takes a lot of force. Those aren't that common, you know, to see the native hip dislocated. So you got to be really careful to look for other injuries. I mean, you want to get the hip in quickly, but often that, that actually the easiest hip I've ever done was in a trauma because as my friends were intubating, were paralyzing and intubating the patient, I just jumped on the bed and pulled the thing in. And it was by far the easiest hip I've ever done. A rocuronium and succinylcholine are fantastic muscle relaxants for dislocation reduction. Unfortunately, most patients don't want us to intubate them to reduce them, but you're right. In trauma situations, they happen to be a little bit different. And again, in those patients with native hip dislocation, we want to make sure that we do that full trauma survey before everybody fixates on the leg, right? It's why we don't usually call the orthopod down right away when there's an open fracture after a trauma because we want to take care of everything else first and not just focus on that that bone sticking out of the leg. And this is kind of the same issue. Absolutely. All right. So let's say that the patient comes in, they tell you that they've had a hip replacement before, and uh, maybe it was just a couple of weeks ago. They were sitting on their couch, which they were told not to do because that puts you into an odd flexation position where it's easy for these things to dislocate. They tried to get out of that couch, and then the hip popped out. So really no trauma at all, minor mechanism. You see that patient, they look pretty comfortable. There's no other injuries you're worried about. What is your go-to reduction technique? Do you have one that you start with and then you go through a, a, a kind of serial procedures or do you just kind of whatever fancies you that day? You know, I'm an old school guy, so I've been doing this for a long time. You get comfortable with one maneuver and I think you try that. When you're training, I think it's good to know a couple of ones because you have different options if you get stuck. So I'm an old school get on the bed and, and, and you know, pull on the you know, flex you know, the knee, the hip, and, and and pull slowly, gently. I use my knees instead of my my back because I'm an old man. I don't want to throw out my back. But I'm an old school. I guess, it, you know, they call it the Alice technique. What is, there's a name for it, isn't it? This is the one where you're doing uh, traction, counter traction up on the bed? Yeah, somebody's pushing down on the pelvis and you're pulling up on the leg. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they all have a name of somebody, but I'm not sure what that one's called. But that is, when I think of a hip dislocation, that's the first image that pops into my head of how to reduce it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is the, the classic old school hip dislocation maneuver. Now, the difference, again, because I've seen you do this many times, the difference between what you do and what I see many of our orthopedic residents do, and, and let me tell you, our orthopedic residents are fantastic. They're great, but uh, they're big guys often, and they use a lot of muscle. So they get up on that bed, and they are pulling and yanking, and they're sweating. I mean, the sweat is dripping off of them. And and this is a, a bit of a physical maneuver, obviously, and you might work up a little bit of a sweat, but these guys are almost slipping off the bed. I've seen people fall off that bed. They're yanking on that leg with so much force that they lose traction, they lose their grip, and they fall. And you have to be a little bit careful about that. But what you were saying up front is that you're not applying these massive forces. It's gentle force applied over time, right? So this is 
an audio podcast, not a video podcast, so you don't get to see that I am not built like an orthopod. It doesn't take a lot of force. If you can get the patient relaxed, now sedation is probably one of the most, in a hip dislocation, sedation is extremely important. And if you can get good muscle relaxation and good pain control, then you don't, it doesn't take an enormous amount of force if you position them correctly. You know, you have to disengage the, the head of the femur from the acetabulum, and then you just gently pull it into place. And it really doesn't take an enormous amount of force. So I basically, I'm, I'm up on the bed, I'm bent at the knees, and I'm basically just holding that, that leg. So I'm under the knee, the knee is flexed also, hip is flexed, knee is flexed. And I'm basically just standing up. So I'm straightening my legs. And when I straighten my legs and stand up, I'm bringing that hip towards the ceiling. And that's when it comes in. Sometimes you can kind of internally and externally rotate a little bit just by shaking your hips. And it really, they, they almost always go in that way. You're basically doing a squat, right? You're doing a squat. So you're using the strongest muscles in your body, which are your the, the quads and everything, as opposed to, like you said before, trying to yank with your back or trying to yank with your arms, which are never going to overcome the patient's own muscles. And then you're doing it slowly and gently, maybe a little bit of rocking back and forth with that leg. And you mentioned sedation. Are you doing procedural sedation on all of these patients or some of them you're just giving them a little bit of analgesia and not giving them the benzodiazepine or the other, other muscle relaxant? So I've moved towards with shoulders and elbows are, are, are tougher, but shoulders, I moved to almost always trying without sedation. It's just so much easier nowadays. The paperwork behind doing moderate sedation or procedural sedation is just overwhelming. Hips, you know, it's rare that you find a patient who you can do a hip without sedation. So most of the time I'm giving them either combined in one drug or in, in two drugs, both analgesia and sedation. And, and what are your go-to? Do you have a go-to that you prefer to use for your medications? It, you know, it, again, now I'm, I'm, I'm an old-timer. I supervise a lot. I let the residents have a lot of leeway with this. I think anything works. I think the mistake people make sometimes is when they use an isolated agent that doesn't get good pain control. So if we're talking using propofol, propofol alone I don't think is a good agent because I think you need some pain relief. So either have, if you've given them some morphine or some fentanyl on top of the propofol. Um, I don't tend to use propofol if it's up to me because if you're working alone, you have more airway issues. And, and if I'm on top of the bed, I'm not going to be down where I need to be at the head of the bed to do the, the jaw thrust that they may need. So I'm an old school. I'm a, a fentanyl and, and midazolam person. You don't need an enormous amount. If you get the patient comfortable in a comfortable position, you've explained everything to them. They're relaxed. You're relaxed. And I, I, I you know, you've seen it. I, I have pretty good success. Yeah. I mean, fentanyl, uh, midazolam is definitely what I did a lot of when I was training. And I don't love the combination just because they're both such profound respiratory depressants. Of course, so are propofol and fentanyl, right? I mean, if you pair propofol and fentanyl, you're going to get very similar effects, maybe a little bit more titratable. Uh, the effects wear off quickly, which is really nice. I've done a couple of hips with ketamine in patients who didn't have a bunch of other comorbidities, but these ten patients tend to be on the older side. They tend to have hypertension, CAD, uh, hyperlipidemia. They, they tend to have all of those things that you kind of makes you, maybe not their contraindications to ketamine, but they at least make you question whether that's the agent to use. But the couple I've done with ketamine, it's nice because it's a single agent. I've done ketofol, kind of the same thing you said. If the resident is like, hey, I want to try ketofol this time, I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. Let's try ketofol this time. Just because I want them to have the experience, as long as it's not dangerous for the patient, I'm okay with trying something else. I will say that the only time I've ever had to give uh, flumazenil to reverse a benzodiazepine 
was when I gave a little bit too much midazolam during a hip relocation. So that's the only time I've ever had to reverse someone. And that doesn't make me shy away from it, but it does make me think, okay, if I'm going to use midazolam and fentanyl, let's make sure that I have my reversal agents nearby. Yeah, but it really depends on the dose you're giving. So I think we've we've gotten more accustomed to giving higher doses of midazolam than I think you need in some of these procedures. You know, so I, when I see somebody try and give five milligrams of midazolam to a patient f- to reduce their hip, I mean, they're overshooting by at least twofold on on that. I think. So, you know, I, again, it's it's all personal preference. Ketamine is a wonderful drug because it has analgesic properties and the dissociative effect. But again, this is not a great patient population for that. Ketofol, I don't see the need to combine those two drugs. In, in, a, in a sense, ketamine alone is probably a better agent if you're going to reach for the ketamine. But anything really works as long as you are kind of reasonable about your approach to it. Now, let's say that you try that technique. You've done the procedural sedation. You've tried that. It doesn't go back in. Tell me what your next uh, approach is. What's your next technique for reduction? Do you have any others that you really like? So, I mean, the Captain Morgan, is such, it's such a great name and it's such a great, you know, idea. Uh, the, it depends how you, a lot of it has to do with the patient. You know, sometimes it's your equipment available, which kind of stretcher you have. You know, we work in an environment where often our stretchers are, are not as functional as we would like them to be. So you have to get the patient in the right position for the Captain Morgan to work. Yeah, and Billy, you're about the same height. You're a little bit taller than I am, but we're we're both about the five eight five nine range. And uh, Captain Morgan, you you need the patient to be pretty low. Exactly what you said. The couple of times I've done it, I've actually had to put the patient on the ground on a uh, on the mattress or maybe two mattresses. But the the bed itself, I couldn't get it low enough for my height to get in there. Now again, some of our orthopods, we got some guys that are on their six two six three. They're going to find it a lot easier to do this. Our orthopedic surgeons don't buy into the Captain Morgan as much, so I've never seen one of them doing it, but we have some taller residents, too, that I've seen do this quite well on the bed, but you're right. I mean, uh, positioning is everything. It's what you said up front. If you're not in a good position with good leverage, you're not going to be able to put anything back in. So I've used the Captain Morgan a couple of times successfully, but I couldn't do it when they were on the bed. I had to actually have a couple of people take the patient off the bed onto the floor in order to get them low enough for me to be able to do this. Yeah, they were, climbing on the bed is bizarre enough, but when you're putting your patient on the floor, I don't think they, they usually don't like that. No, no, especially not uh, in the emergency departments that we work in. Uh, those floors have seen better days for sure. That's for sure. All right, so any other uh, tips or tricks, any other things that you see people get wrong over and over again that you want to share with the listeners? Um, I'm trying to think, I, you know, it's, it's a pretty basic procedure. And I think, you know, this is just one of those ones you just watch a couple of videos. I think it's a very satisfying, very easy procedure. Again, tell the patient exactly what's going to happen. They often are very, very anxious about that. And, and relaxing the patient helps you so much. It takes some of the muscle spasm away and it'll reduce your need for, 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 procedural sedation medications and just makes the whole thing so much easier. All right. So Billy, you've got the, let's say you've got a 75 year old woman who comes in with an atraumatic dislocation. It's a prior hip replacement in the past. She looks pretty good. You do your procedural sedation, you get the hip back in and you're looking at her and you're like, well, you know, most of these patients don't have to be admitted. They can go home after this procedure is done. What are the things that you're telling them before they go home? What do they have to watch out for? So many of them all come in with the brace that they were sent home with, so they have uh, the special brace. If not, if you have a brace company or your central supply has that brace, you get them the brace for them, or you just put a pillow between their legs. Again, I'm I'm a big believer that if you have access to the person who's operated on somebody, and this is a you know again a known complication of their operation, you should touch base with them. So you say, 
I call up the orthopod and say, hey, I just put your, you know, Mrs. Jones dislocated her hip. I put it back in, no problems. She has her brace on. I'm going to send her home. Is there anything special you want her to know or that you want her to do? And when do you want to follow her up? I think that's pretty reasonable. And you're right. I mean, we should be able to get in touch with the orthopedic surgeon who saw the patient, who took care of the patient before, before we send them home. It also makes the patient feel better. You know, I talked to your doc. They said, hey, no problem. You can go home, keep the brace on, and they're going to see you in two days. And I find that I rarely have to send these patients home with much for pain medication. Once you get that hip back in, they don't have a lot of pain. Uh, so often I can just send them home with Tylenol or ibuprofen as long as that's okay for them. I don't usually send them home with anything too much stronger than that. No, once the hip is back in, they usually feel much better. And that's, you know, sometimes they'll have a little muscle soreness, but again, a small dose of acetaminophen, again, it's a patient population where you don't love to use non-steroidals. People who have had their hips done are often hypertensive. They're often have some, you know, minor kidney disease. So if you can, if I can avoid non-steroidals, I try and stay away from them, but it's, you know, one or two doses is, is probably not going to hurt most patients. Absolutely. All right, Billy, that was great. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, sharing all of these pitfalls and pearls with everybody. That's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.